We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder. E is for... Danger! And, uh... Dodge. With... Monster. Help! Love me and be... Please! Help! Yeah. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Is4 podcast. I am your host for this evening, Danger, and I am joined by Monster. Say hello, Monster. Hello, Monster. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Sarge is in uh, the mouse house, the land of the rat. Yeah, I know. He uh, He's enjoying Disney World and all of its offerings. It's uh, giant churros. It's um, I hope he is stuck on It's a Small World. And it, I don't hope it for his torture, but I hope it because of my jealousy, because I want to be at Disney World. I like Disney well, World. Well, while he is in the House of Mouse, we are in a different visionary's house tonight. Yes, we are a different visionary. I... Am I a visionary? I don't. The metaphorical. I didn't meet your house, ding dong. I met the person we're talking about. Okay. Yes, we are in the house of Q is for Quentin Tarantino, and if you remember from <laughs> season two, we I, was it two? Was it one? I don't know. I'm losing track at this point. But we had trouble coming up with things for the letter Q, so we are referring to Quentin as our old friend, Quentin. Mr. Tarantino is not here. He is Quentin for us. We uh, left off his third, his the the third set of three movies, <laughs> and because he has done ten movies to date, but we are going to be talking, starting with Inglorious Bastards, which is uh-huh. one of Monster's favorite movies. I love it. It's it's a great movie, but I have not seen it or have the love for it that Monster does. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said you have not seen it? No, I have seen it, but I don't have the love for it that you do. Oh, okay, okay. I, I liked it. I liked it just fine. It's not my top Tarantino movie, but Ooh. it's it's a good one. So tonight we're talking Glorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. Well, I'm not going to say those are my top three because they're not. But, okay. but I could make a strong argument for Bastards being my favorite. You know what? I'll just... I'm saying it here. I'm saying it right now. Glorious Bastards, my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie for sure. Okay. Um, Django is right up there, and Hateful Eight is a Quentin Tarantino movie I like. Yes, I I <laughs> will give you that same thing, but we will wait to get to our opinions of the Hateful Eight in okay. just a bit. Okay. So we left off with Kill Bill and. You know, uh, whether talking about whether it was a one or two part movie, and then on to Death Proof, which I know is another one of your your favorites. It is, and so we're gonna jump into Inglorious Bastards next. Just give me your opinion of Inglorious Bastards. I know just from the short intro and from what I know of you from the past, you love Inglorious Bastards. Why do you love Inglorious Bastards so much? Well. Look- start by saying there there is one part of the movie that i genuinely dislike okay and that is when it's over and the credits start running i love this movie from start to finish there's nothing in this movie i don't love there are certain parts that i think jump out a little bit stronger than others 
but there is not a bad performance. There's not a lull in the film. This is one of those movies that I, me and, and, and my wife as well, revisit on a very regular basis, and it never gets old. Maybe I need to go back and I, revisit it. So, I think the opening scene when Christoph Waltz comes into the dairy farmer's house and that scene alone, like as a short film, is perfection. But the, oh God, the tension and the edge of your seat. Like, I remember sitting in theaters watching it. Uh, I think the first time I saw it, I don't even remember now, but I remember seeing it in theaters and I remember just thinking like, okay, it's these two people having a conversation, you know, Tarantino conversations. And there's the thing about the pipes. And it's kind of funny. And I'm like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Then it starts to set in like what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God. Like I'm already like in the first 25 minutes, I have goosebumps and I'm on the edge of my seat. And it, it doesn't let up. For, for me, as, as interesting as the, the storylines in Pulp Fiction are, as fun as the visceral blood and gore as Kill Bill is, nothing compares to the performances and the story and the just overall vibe of Inglorious Bastards. I love this movie. So the to talk about the performances, yes, their performances are phenomenal, are fantastic. And you know, Tarantino is known for his dialogue. And the dialogue that he wrote for this, just the monologues that he gave, they're they're fantastic. Christoph Waltz does a phenomenal job. And I think that's one of the things about this movie that kind of set itself apart from other movies is that he all of a sudden was dealing with a different level of actor in this movie. Not to say that the actors from his previous ones are not good by any means, but, you know, to talk about working with Christoph Waltz, you're dealing with somebody who kind of takes things to a different level. He really does. And, and, and Waltz has this ability to be charming and menacing all at the same time. Cause you think of him as in, the, in that opening sequence when he's talking to the dairy farmer and he's asking about if, if he's harboring Jews under his floorboard. And then you cut to when they're doing the movie premiere and he's doing like, he's asking, He's clearly sees through the charade of the Americans and he's just livid in it. He's just laughing. He's having such a good time. That falls apart on a lesser actor. Mm-hmm. But because Waltz has such a presence and he's incredible. I've, I've seen him in other movies and I've, I think he's a great actor, but I don't think I've ever seen him fully commit and fully be a character as he is in this film. So he's an actor that does something that not a lot of other, uh, other actors do, which is they, when they're given a good script, they take that script and they break it apart in a way that most actors don't do. He can also take a mediocre script and live and, you know, and level it up. But, you know, whereas a lot of other actors like also in this movie, Brad Pitt, who is a great actor, but, a lot of times he plays Brad Pitt, you know, that's just who he is. But then sometimes he's given a script like this and he has little nuances within himself, like how he holds his mouth. Now I want to talk about Brad Pitt for just a quick second. So Pitt and Tarantino had wanted to work together for years, but they couldn't find the right thing. 
the the right fit for for what you know for Pitt. And I think it's I think it's because Tarantino kind of saw it as I want to find something where Brad Pitt's not going to play Brad Pitt. Now, I think in the next outing they had together, I think he was a lot closer to playing himself in the in the role that in the way that you're used to him being. But when Tarantino was halfway through writing the script, he felt that Pitt was a strong possibility for the character. He felt like it was going to fit right in for Aldo Rain. And by the time he had finished writing it, Tarantino thought Pitt would be fantastic because he had started to write Pitt as this role. So it was Pitt was the only person he had in in mind for this. And then when Tarantino went to Pitt's agent to ask him if he could play it, Pitt actually dropped what he was working on, which I couldn't even find what he was working on. Whereas, as we'll get into in other with other actors um, in this and his other movies, they dropped out because of scheduling conflicts. Pitt was like, no, this is my scheduling conflict for everything else. And I think that similar to John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, Tarantino pulled a performance out of Pitt that even Pitt didn't know he had in it. Right. Lieutenant Aldo Rain is a, there's something about the characters in this film. It's not just the acting. It's when you see Christoph Waltz as, as his character, when you see Eli Roth as the bear Jew, when you see Brad Pitt as Apache, they transform, like they become completely different people. And, even even Mike Myers in the tiny role he has is a completely different person. There's something about Tarantino's vision and directing skills that he pulls these performances out of people that nobody else can. And as, I love Brad Pitt. I like him oh in yeah. a lot of stuff. But as Lieutenant Aldo Rain, he's a totally different human. And, and we'll get to another good example of that when we talk about the next film, too. Okay. And I think it's because people respect Tarantino uh, for what he, you know, his dialogue, what he writes, how he writes a script. So next up in in the uh, the cast, Melanie Laurent. I think I'm gonna I mispronounced that, but she was uh, Shoshana Dreyfus. And oh. what I learned in researching this is a lot of her attributes were actually intended for the bride in Kill Bill, and. She actually got a lot of those, but then um, originally she was an assassin who had a list of Nazis that she wanted to kill, but then he kind of used the assassin part for the bride, and so he had to kind of rework her, and he described her as a Jewish Joan of Arc. Tarantino did. Quentin. Let's Quentin. Let's get rid of the Tarantino part. Let's Quentin. Quentin. Yeah. So he, he described her as a Jewish Joan of Arc, which I understand because she was this... Jewish person and kind of pulled off this amazing thing. You know, you had the two plot lines of the two people, the two groups that were coming to kill. And then she ended up pulling it off and it was a completely third, you know, third person in the mix of things. And so, yeah, I can see the Jewish Joan of Arc thing. Now, later on in the film where her and um, the projectionist, set the coup to set the film on fire and all that. She has a very strong feminine art, which by but, the way, we, I, we've kind of gone back and forth with it, but spoilers abound. <laughs> spoilers abound. 
If you haven't seen these movies, go and see them. Stop listening to this and go and watch these movies because they're great movies. They are. All three of these are incredible films. Except um, for The Hateful Eight, which is a Tarantino oh, movie. <laughs> I slap the shit out of you. It is not a bad movie. It's not all. a bad movie by any means. It's just a long ass movie. Why? Well, we'll right, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, but honestly, I think uh, Shoshana's scene with Walt in the restaurant where they're talking. And again, like Christoph Waltz, Jesus Christ, he is perfection in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just watching his performance, he is two, three, four steps ahead of whoever he's talking to. And that scene where they're at the restaurant and he's talking to her clearly 100% knows who she is, mm-hmm. knows why he's talking to her, but can't act on it yet. Right. And he's just playing with her. Right. And her performance versus his performance. It's just like, okay, from start to finish and glorious bastards is a phenomenal film, but you can take this scene by scene and every scene, has its own complex structure and emotions attached to it. Okay. So do you know who Tarantino originally wanted instead of Christoph Waltz to play that character? Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio. And he wanted to give the role to a German speaking actor to have the authentic accent in it. But then he really was having trouble casting it because he felt like it was an unplayable character that he had written and he felt like Christoph Waltz was the only person that could even get close to doing it, which he obviously did. So I can, I can close my eyes and see him eating that pastry. And when she goes to take a bite, he goes, ha ha le creme. Like I can still see it like as if I'm watching the movie, he is perfect in that role. And as much as I love Leonardo DiCaprio and we'll get to him in a minute, we will Waltz was the right choice. So an an actor that's not really an actor, Eli Roth, director, and and the movie that actually kind of got Eli Roth into this was Hostel, which was a Quentin Tarantino presents. We'll we'll talk about Hostel at a different time. He played Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. Donnie Donowitz is the father of Lee Donowitz from True Romance. Aha. That's neat. Yeah. So Tarantino intended for those things to be connected. Now, also, before Eli Roth said, yeah, I'll do it, he tried to get Adam Sandler, who had scheduling conflicts with funny people. And Adam Sandler probably could have done it because Adam Sandler actually has serious acting jobs. I, I think he does. Okay, so my heart is about to explode out of my chest. Eli Roth is on a short list of people that I would die to meet. Um, Okay. I, I think he is – there is a little bit of this frat bro mentality that he gets lumped into yeah. that is somewhat warranted, but he's also smarter than he plays. I think he is actually a really legitimately intelligent and proficient filmmaker. Um, I think Donnie Donowitz as the Bear Jew is one of those characters that really steals the show every time he's on screen. even. So there's obviously the scene where he comes the out tunnel, you know, they've he's got the, the bat on the wall and yeah, they're like, he's a golem. It's like, 
he bashes people's brains in with a baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But when he walks on screen, like you don't forget it. Like, you know, um, and yeah, say what you want about, you know, hostile and piranha and whatever, but he, I, I think he is a treasure and I love him to death. And I like the idea of Adam Sandler, especially considering he is Jewish, just like Eli right. Roth, which, you know, Tarantino had that in the back of his mind. Which, um, if you don't know that Adam Sandler is Jewish, go listen to the Hanukkah song. <laughs> <laughs> he he makes it very clear. Yes. Um, but I think, again, there's something about, like, you can go back to all the Tarantino's films and the casting is is brilliant. But this one in particular, like, I think Adam, I agree with you, Adam Sandler could have pulled it off. But Eli Roth has that, like, slick kind of handsome look. That just makes him more menacing when he walks out with that baseball bat. Like I, I just, I'm, I'm with. It. I like it. So, also we had Michael Fassbender, who I think Michael Fassbender is a phenomenal actor that doesn't get enough uh, good roles. Uh, Diane Beth, Kruger, sorry. Top five, top five lines of the movie. Paris when it sizzles. Yeah. Uh, Diane Kruger, Daniel Brohl, B.J. Novak, which surprised me when he showed up in here because I knew him from The Office. Okay. So. Uh, which they picked it because of his uh, slim New York build um, and his Jewish look. So I, I love the part where he's talking about like, they call you the little man, but you're about average size. <laughs> Sam Levine and then Mike Myers. Now, Mike Myers was a fan of Tarantino and had, you know, been asking to work with him, been, you know, kind of ringing his doorbell. You know, I, I like to think that he's writing him letters, you know, <laughs> but so Myers had parents that had been in the British Armed Forces. I found, in terms of the character's dialect, Myers uh, felt that a version of received punctuation meeting the officer class and just wanted to portray the attitude of, I'm fed up with this war, and if this dude can end it, great, because my country is in ruins. Again, it is so short and so simple. But that back and forth between Myers and Fassbender, where there's he's just Project Kino, and he's just going over the basic like instructions of the mission, and he's just like, "Would you like a drink?" Like, well, if you offered me a scotch and plain water, I'd take a scotch and plain water. He's like, "Help yourself; it's in the globe." Right. Like, it's just so simple, but they're again, it transcends. Like, you know, that's Mike Myers in makeup. You know that's Mike Fa- Michael Fassbender with a cool hat, but it doesn't matter. Like right. you are so in the world, and I don't know if that's Tarantino a hundred percent or if that is the performances. Like these dudes came to play, but it just works. Yep, absolutely perfect. So then we have uh, two standbys for Tarantino: Samuel Jackson, who narrated the film, narrated the movie, um, and Harvey Keitel just voiced office of strategic services commander that he, he yeah, just, they both yeah. get voices. That's it. So, well, and, and, and honestly, Kaitel's part, I don't even really remember. Right. I didn't but, either, but Jackson's, I remember very clearly cause he talks about, uh, Stiglitz and his, uh, reign of terror. <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, but when this movie came out, there was another movie that, kind of got a little boost in popularity. And when I saw it pop up, I was like, Hey, wait a second. And I watched it 
There's a 1978 movie, war movie, called The Inglorious Bastards. And so Tarantino used that title and changed the uh, the uh, spelling. <laughs> and right. uh, Tarantino would not explain the first U in Inglorious because, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he said, the bastards, that's just the way you say it, bastards. And it's B-A-S-T-E-R-D-S. And so... <laughs> He did say on Letterman that Inglorious Bastards is a Quentin Tarantino spelling. That's the only explanation he's ever given for it. And I never really watched the original Inglorious Bastards, but there's like three of them. Like there's there's a few of them from yeah. the seventies. I think so. And and I think that Tarantino liked the revisionist history World War II concept, and he wanted to run with it. And instead of trying, because let's be honest here, if you if you dig deep enough, you'll find tons of movies and films and, and TV shows that do exactly this. They try to like sort of like a, a revisionist version of World War II yeah. Hitler and all that. And instead of Tarantino trying to like act like he was doing something special, he said, no, I'm borrowing from what these guys are did, just like he did in Death Proof. He just gave it a different name and he just straight up remade a remake. Almost. Right. So the original Inglorious Bastards, nothing like Tarantino's. So mm. nothing like it at all. So in 2002, he had come to the conclusion that Inglorious Bastards, just the script of it, was a bigger film than he had planned and saw their directors working on war, on World War II movies. And so he had completed three scripts of it and said, some of the best writing things I've ever done and could ever come. And I couldn't come up with an ending. So he moved on to direct kill bill part one and two. And then after finishing kill bill, he went back to his first storyline and uh, insisted he trimmed the script using his script for Pulp Fiction as a guide for length. Okay. I don't really see the two as, as flowing together. So he finally came to a, place of where he was okay with the the story and out of everything in the script he actually said that the beginning part you're talking about where he's interrogating the french dairy farmer is his favorite thing he's ever written and we've talked about before about how he has borrowed things from different scripts and he just refused to let that go anywhere else or anything close to that to any of his other movies even you know because he had written this back in or started writing this back in uh 98 we've we've talked about tarantino's movies and stuff and he writes his scripts way before the movie comes out yes i'm assuming if you're listening to this right now you've watched this movie if you have not even i mean spoilers it doesn't matter this is a movie that needs to be seen like i think most tarantino movies need to be seen for sure but I, I was a little bit hesitant at the beginning, but no, this this is by far my favorite Tarantino film. This is and a like this is my opinion, a Tarantino movie that does not get enough, you know, credit. I, I think that people got so hung up on Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill that yeah, Django gets a lot of love and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but I, I do I, I agree with you. I think this one sort of gets lost in the shuffle. And to me, regardless of of, of how you want to rank them, how you want to, you know, what's your favorite, whatever. To me, 
if this is not in your top three, I, I, I don't know what you're doing. Like, even if this is not your favorite Tarantino movie like it is mine, it's got to be in the conversation for one of his best. So Tarantino said that the uh, the scene where Kruger is being strangled, that's his hands that are doing it. Yep. Uh, that That's his only cameo in this movie is, is his hands. So, um, I, and if you're doing a foot, um, a Tarantino toe count, um, there's a very clear shot where, um, right before that happens, uh, Waltz is trying to prove the fact that she left her shoe at the thing. So he's like, put your foot right here. And then there is quite the close up of her feet as he's putting on the shoe. And then even during the strangling, uh, scene, there is a close up on her feet. That's, yeah. uh, I don't remember that. So Tarantino's I, toe talk for yes. this episode. Well, for this, Phil. We'll, we'll get right. to the next. So I do want to talk about the promotion in Germany and, uh, and Austria. So Universal Pictures, they changed the film's publicity materials in Germany and Austria. Uh, and it was to comply with both countries' laws. And the display of anything Nazi is restricted there. <laughs> so the swastika is restricted. So the swastika is removed. I- I can understand why. Yeah, yeah. They just had a little incident, a little, little snafu, if you will. So the swastika was removed from anything, from the uh, topography in the title, and uh, which I think it's a bold move to just put that right there. But uh, the steel helmet with the bullet hole in the place of the Nazi symbol. So uh, that poster with the steel helmet and the baseball bat, that's a solid image though oh yeah definitely without the even without the swastika that's a that's a strong move so that movie had a budget of 70 million and went on to make 321.5 million so that is a return i don't think any of his movies flopped by any means even jackie brown did good no none of them flopped. (laughs) so in 2010 tarantino quentin sorry quentin uh (laughs) he bought the new Beverly cinema in Los Angeles. And he allowed it to just continue to operate. He let the previous owners operate it. He just pretty much bought it. So nothing happened to it. And he said he would only make occasional programming suggestions at best. He was quoted as saying, as long as I'm alive and as long as I am rich, the new Beverly will be there showing films shot in 35 millimeter. And he didn't do anything except just make little suggestions until 2014. And then Quentin came in and made it, uh, took a more active role in uh, the programming, screening selections. And he showed a lot of his own movies from his personal collection and his movies. So I can't blame him, honestly. You know, if you own a theater that shows movies like he wants to show, yeah, you're going to end up stepping in and controlling things a little bit more. To be honest with you, like, you know, we have a, you know, the Carolina theater here in downtown, they'll show 35 millimeter films. And, you know, I've, I've been there to see evil dead and young Frankenstein and a couple other things. Could you imagine having a theater in your neighborhood where they were like, Hey, Quentin Tarantino might show up and show you some old gangster film just for shits and giggles. It would be cool. I might go to that. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I might go on a Wednesday just for the chance. You mean I can go see Dirty Harry and shake hands with Quentin Tarantino? Yeah, I'll spend seven dollars. I will right. be there. 
All right, so we're going to move on to talk about Django Unchained. Oh, another good one. Yes, Django Unchained is a great movie. So, general premise of the movie. It follows a slave, enslaved black man. Christoph Waltz comes in as the German bounty yeah. hunter and presents him with the ultimate goal of reuniting with his wife. Cool. Broomhilda. Yes. Now, Jamie Foxx, we know as Django. But... The first two people that he wanted for the role was Michael K. Williams, which I'm not familiar with Michael K. Williams, and Will Smith. I, I knew the Will Smith one, but I'm not sure uh, I'm super Michael K. Williams either. And uh, Smith turned it down because uh, he wasn't the lead, which, forgive me, but I think of Django as the lead in that movie. So Tyrese Gibson sent in an audition tape for that role. Uh. Yeah. And we got Christoph Waltz, and then we've got Leonardo DiCaprio, which uh, Leonardo does a phenomenal job in that movie. Kerry uh, Washington and Samuel Jackson. Now, Walton Goggins, which is one of the most sure. underrated actors. I, I love Walton Goggins. He's he's phenomenal. He could do serious. He could do comedy. He's great. If you haven't seen The Righteous Gemstones or Vice Principals, definitely watch it. It's it's great. I'm I love him in House of a Thousand Corpses. It's a very small Oh, I forgot role, he was in that. Yeah, I, I forgot. So fun. His, his role in The Righteous Gemstones, which is about a, a super rich televangelist family and how effed up the televangelist world really is. He is awesome in it. Anyway, so Kevin Costner was actually in negotiations as Ace Woody, a Mandingo trainer, and Candy's right-hand man. But Costner dropped out due to scheduling conflicts. Kurt Russell was cast in that role oh, instead. Okay, so hold so, on, hold on, hold oh, on, hold on. Before we go right, any okay, okay. I think I've made this clear before, but if I haven't, let me just state it now. Kurt Russell is on a very short list of people I'm slightly in love with. I absolutely love Kurt Russell. You're not a gay man, but you would definitely hold it till it goes soft. Have Have I made it clear that my love for Kurt Russell? I feel like I have. No, I, I, I get that. Yeah. Okay. No, we haven't talked a lot about Kurt Russell, but anytime Kurt Russell is mentioned, your eyes glisten a little bit. My eyes glisten. My pants get tighter. It's I can't help it. Kurt Russell was cast in place of Kevin Costner. Kurt Russell dropped out. No, no, no explanation I could find for it. But then Ace Woody was not recast. The character was then merged with another character and became Billy Crash, Walter Goggin, Walton Goggin's character. So that uh, that Ace Woody character is just no more. And then an old standby for uh, for Tarantino or for Quentin, Bruce Dern. Love some Bruce Dern, but he's not an actor that really stands out. But anytime he's in something, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Bruce Dern, cool, we're good. Little old man. Yeah. Now I knew this at one time. I forgot about it until researching this, but Jonah Hill. Plays Baghead number two. <laughs> He's a yes. member of the white supremacist group, supposed to be the KKK. Let me do a little run through on on Baghead. All right. <laughs> so the role was offered to uh, the he was offered the role. Excuse me, he was offered the role of Scotty Harmony, a gambler who loses Broomhilda to Candy in a poker game. He, he turned it down due to conflicts with the watch. And I always think it's funny to hear of actors that turn down a movie that does so much better than the movie they turned it down for, like The Watch. What the hell is The Watch? Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. I think it was a movie with Vince Vaughn. I think. I don't know. Then the role was offered to Sasha Baron Cohen, but then declined it to take on Les Miserables or The Miserable. (laughs) So neither Scotty nor the poker game appear in the final cut of the film, but Hill was able to squeeze in (laughs) coming in for the baghead number two. This is another one of those scenes where like taken completely out of context of the film, it's still perfection. Mm -hmm. Just, like, I love the part where they're like, hey, no one's ragging on the the quality of the bag, okay? We just can't see out of it. God, such a good moment. And then we have a few people that show up in Tarantino's films, Quentin's films, uh, Zoe Bell, Robert Carradine, James Parks, Tom Savini, all play the Candyland trackers. Michael Parks also has a little cameo as Frankie, and uh, Tarantino also appears as another baghead <laughs> named Robert. He he pops up near the end too. Does he? Uh, yeah, when they have Django in, like near the end, they think they capture him or something. He's in like a a wagon cage or something, and you see him without the bag on. Because I remember distinctly thinking, "Damn, he's really let himself go." <laughs> like he just he just he looked wider than usual. Maybe he was low on. Hey, that week. Did you have it set on widescreen? No, no. I just think he hadn't like he hadn't had his normal dose of cocaine no. that week of filming or something. All right, okay, all right. So, I, and I just mentioned this a minute ago that he starts writing his scripts years before the movie comes out, and he started writing this in 2007, and he finished it in 2011. But production had kind of already started going because he was so in love with the idea of a spaghetti western set in the Civil War Deep South, which. I think it's a cool concept. Well, and again, just like in Glorious Bastards, Django was a character that existed before Tarantino came up with this whole concept. Yes. Like, again, this isn't necessarily a remake, but he is borrowing from things he loves. Right. And in 2012, uh, RZA. Yeah. Yeah. Wu-Tang. Right. From Wu-Tang. Tarantino had, you know, put out his or produced his The Man with the Iron Fist, which I don't know if you saw that, but it was not a good movie. <laughs> it just wasn't. I had no desire to see it. No, it was not a good movie. Visually, it was fun, but just everything else about it was just not good. So he actually had intended to make a crossover with The Man with the Iron Fist, with that universe. The crossover would have seen a younger version of the blacksmith character. And that's it, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but Riza would have appeared as a slave at auction, but scheduling conflicts kept that from happening. Those damn scheduling. Yeah, I know. I know. So you'd mentioned that Django was a character before and the whole Mandigo part of things. Now that was actually, it came from a 75 film Mandingo, where a slave trained to fight other slaves. Now, there are people that claimed historical inaccuracies about this movie. And I don't think you can claim historical inaccuracies about a man that changes history in his movies like Inglorious Bastards. But yeah, joke. On this. So, David Blight, director of Yale Center for Study of Slavery, said it was not a matter of 
moral or ethical reservations that pre, uh, that prevented slave owners from pitting slaves against each other in combat, but rather economic self-interest, slave owners would not have wanted to put their substantial financial investments at risk in gladiator battles. I get that. There's no historical evidence that it happened, but Tantino said, I was always aware those things existed. There is no definitive historical evidence that slave owners ever staged gladiator-like fights to the death between male slaves like depicted in the movie. So he took a concept from a movie and applied it in this movie, and the people went, that's not right to history. You can't do that. It kind of reminds me of when Tarantino was doing press for Kill Bill, and that one film critic was like, these awful depictions of violence, and why do you do it? And it's so wrong. And he's like, because it's fun. Like, yeah, because it makes for an interesting story. Like you said, in Glorious Bastards, Django Unchained, if you are going to Quentin Tarantino for your history lesson, then you're going to have a very remarkably incorrect view of history. These it's are like depending on the Daily Show for news. Right. Yeah. It's there for entertainment. If you watch Saturday Night Live Weekend Update for legitimate news, you're going to have a skewed perspective. Right. This is entertainment. This is a film. Right. And I took and out everything about people having backlash on violence uh, from my notes because it's such a moot point and things. I mean, he really, he has walked out of interviews where people bring it up and ask him about it. Yeah. If you go into a Quentin Tarantino movie and your talking point when you speak with him is on the violence, what are you even doing? Like, are you that unself-aware of what is happening? But again, like, that's his style. That is... You know, again, like the revisionist history, that's just what he does. And to his credit, you know, hey, say what you will. He's probably right on this aspect. I can't imagine that slave owners did not do these kinds of things for their own personal entertainment and their own personal financial gain. And he's just, again, it's just to tell a story. Right. I've often seen a, a Tarantino critique where they talk about his use of the N word, mm -hmm. and which we're going to talk about that here in a second. So I, I'm sure we will. And the thing is, is I've read plenty of books by Stephen King and and other authors, and watched plenty of movies where where people use that word, and that's not the filmmaker saying that word. It is the character that they have written that they're trying to make you feel a certain way about mm -hmm. using that word to control your opinion. Again, say what you want about Quentin Tarantino. I'm not saying he's blameless or faultless, but what I am saying is when people attack him for being racist or ultra violent or whatever, again, he's trying to tell a story with these characters. That's the point. Like he's trying to do that to get under your skin. So, I do want to just talk about the broken glass incident of this movie because, oh, we can't, yeah, absolutely, That's because it is a great moment. Incredible so, scene. as we all know, Leonardo DiCaprio smashed a glass on the table when he was, you know, giving his whole monologue, and he cut his hand. Now, the thing is, is that he stayed in character and didn't break character during the entire thing. Blood is gushing from his hand. 
And so all the other actors on set, their reaction is very genuine because it was a very, it was obvious it was a very real cut. And then contrary to popular belief, DiCaprio did not rub actual blood on on Washington's face, on Broomhilda's face. He didn't. It was stage blood. But I think that that's great that everybody's response, I think it's a great thing to learn whenever everybody's response is genuine on set. And the fact that he did not break character and he was so committed to the scene, Tarantino thought it deserved to be in the movie. (laughs) And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we'll have another great example of that when we get to The Hateful Eight. (laughs) Yes, we will. We will. So, movie had a $100 million budget, made $426 million. Now, I didn't talk about the critical response to uh, to our last movie, but this movie, certified fresh, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, 90% audience score. Now, our favorite film reviewer, that when I come across anything by Roger Ebert in something that has to do with a film that we talk about, I got to bring it up. And he gave the movie four out of four stars. He said the movie, the film offers one sensational sequence after another, all set around these two intriguing characters. He said, I had not been prevented from seeing it sooner because of an injury. This would have been on my year's best film list. Now, the injury he's talking about is where he, what he eventually ended up passing away from. I, I just did a quick IMDb search, and I will say, Inglorious Bastards has an 8.3. Which is good for IMDb. Okay. Oh, it's it's incredible. Yeah. Django has an 8.4. Which is still really and, good for IMDb. And I would argue that Bastards is better. But hey, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. I think that is just you. All right. We're going to talk about the racist language that he uses in his movies. Now. Spike Lee said in an interview with Vibe, all I'm going to say is that it's disrespectful to his ancestors or to my ancestors. Yeah, that's just me. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody else. He later tweeted, American slavery was not a Sergio Leone spaghetti Western film. It was a Holocaust. My ancestors are slaves stolen from Africa. I will honor them. Now, Samuel Jackson, I appreciate his perspective. He told Vogue Man, which I didn't even know Vogue Man was a magazine before, but so Django, he said, Django Chain is a harder and more detailed exploration of what slavery experience was than 12 Years a Slave. But director Steve McQueen is an artist, and since he's respected for making supposedly art films, it's held to higher esteem than Django because it was basically a black exploitation movie. Now, I understand the general discomfort with that word, with the N-word. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm not going to even pretend that I don't. And I understand that slavery was an awful and terrible thing and a a black smear on American history and something that we're not proud of. There's Some people are proud of it, but those people are stupid. They're not my friends. But I think that the people that miss what the usage of this word in this movie and any of his movies are the ones that don't get his movies in general. And quite frankly, I think that those that are that that miss the usage and why the word is used in this movie are either black people that are looking to be offended by the word or white people that are uncomfortable with the word. Plain and simple. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's a sensitive subject, and I yeah. don't want to disrespect anybody. No, I don't uh, either, and, and that's not my intention of talking about this. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I feel like there is a certain demographic of people, and this isn't a race thing. This isn't a gender thing. There's a certain demographic of people that want to be upset over yes. something. Yeah, and and that's not that that's not any specific race or gender, as you were just talking about. No, it's no, it's no. just there are people that want to be offended. They're usually named Karen. And, but go on. A lot of times they're named Karen. And sometimes they have purple hair. And <laughs> it, it's often easy to attack a white filmmaker right. for using racial slurs. And if you watch Django Unchained and the most offensive treatment of black people is the use of that word, then we watch different films. Right. Because the whole point of that film is a slave getting revenge on the people who did him wrong. Right. And if you're more concerned with that one word versus the physical and mental and emotional abuse he went through that put him into the situation he was in, I think you missed the point of the film. Absolutely. There- I saw a really good interview with, with Tarantino shortly after the film came out with Pam Greer. Now, again, the people that are coming to Tarantino's defense, d- defense are Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, African Americans who he has employed and paid very well. Yeah. So I understand the backlash against that as well. I would venture but, to say that Quentin Tarantino is responsible for a ginormous part of of Samuel Jackson's career. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and I don't think Jamie Foxx would want to step up to the podium and condemn Quentin Tarantino in any way, shape, or form either. No. But I think that it's real easy to get offended, and it takes a little more of a strong presence to accept, hey, this is art. Art is made to make you uncomfortable. Sometimes people say and do things that offend you and upset you. As a horror fan, if it doesn't offend and grotesque you, I'm probably not going to like it. Like, those are the movies that I like. Right. So I understand that, hey, that word makes you uncomfortable, but I think that's the point. So I saw a comedian a while back, and I can't remember who it was, I, and I want to because I want to find the piece again because I thought it was hysterical. But he talked about how if you're going to make a movie that shows what – this time period was actually like you have to have the the bad white people like you had this movie you have to in order to have a realistic you know view of what it was you have to have those people then he went on to talk about how i want to talk about how quentin tarantino or excuse me how tom cruise does his own stunts leonardo dicaprio did his own stunts to call jamie fox that repeatedly in front of samuel jackson and carrie washington and I thought it was great a great point within it where it's like you have to have these characters. You have to have this ugliness in movies to show the accuracy of this time period. If you're watching Django and you think the white characters are the good guys, right. that's your own problem. Right. Like nobody's sitting there going, man, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's my hero. Oh, right. he said, I'm going to do that too. Like, right. no. The whole point is he is the bad guy. And again, in Tarantino fashion, the bad guy is charismatic and entertaining, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to have mixed feelings. That's the whole damn point of the thing. But he's still the bad guy. And 
I, I don't think Tarantino is ever going to say, yeah, I like the N word. Let's say it more. We should say it like I don't think he ever. That was never his intention. No, no. But again, like we said, it's just people that want to get offended, finding something to be offended by. All right. Let's talk the hateful eight. So, yes, do it. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the hateful eight, go watch it. Take a bathroom break. <laughs> um, okay. Watch it on Netflix. Okay, that was what I was getting ready to say. Let me preface it by saying, you can watch the movie and it's fine. Or you can watch the version on Netflix that is broken down into four roughly hour-long episodes, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. That's the way to watch it. So he actually originally envisioned The Hateful Eight as a novel and then turned into a script. And we know the script, the script was leaked to uh to the public and he got mad about it and he said he wasn't going to make it but then he decided to actually put on a live read uh of the script with a lot of the cast but he actually gave the cast different parts than they actually ended up getting in the movie so let's talk about this cast all right there's not a lot to break down with in the cast but we're just going to run through some of the the major players samuel jackson kurt russell Gush, go ahead. Yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee, which Tarantino is great for giving people that need work work again. <laughs> uh, Walton Coggins, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Bruce Dern, Channing Tatum, Diana Greer, and Zoe Bell. Okay, so just like Caprio and Django, there's always like this one that you feel is like miscast and you can't wait to see what they do. And I'm a genuine fan of Channing, uh, Channing Tatum. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. Uh, I've seen the Magic Mike movies. I've seen the Jump, uh, 21 Jump Street movies. Like, I like him. I think yeah. he's funny. I think he's charismatic. He's got really um, good timing. He does. I was kind of disappointed with him in this. Yeah. I expected more out of him. He didn't stand out. No. So, premise of the movie, eight strangers seek refuge, and then shit goes crazy. So... You know, it's, it, he originally started uh, conceiving it and writing it during Django, and then again decided to put it out as as his movie or as his script. Before we go any further, this is actually a, a this was a big sidestep for him because before this he had worked with the Weinstein Company almost exclusively for most of his movies, either Weinstein Company or Weinstein owned companies around this time was when all the Harvey stuff started coming out and Quentin ended up coming out and saying, this is going to be the last movie I do with the Weinstein company and part of ways with them after this movie, which I feel like you can really feel the change in direction, but it may just be because Hollywood's such a different movie after this. I'll be honest with you. Um, and I know this, this is not the episode for this Hollywood. Granted, I have seen every Quentin Tarantino movie probably three or four times at least, and I've only seen Hollywood once. Mm -hmm. Me too. Might be my least favorite Tarantino yep. movie so far. Right. I'm um, with you on that, but we'll 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 save Hollywood for Yeah, save that for the next one. He needs to put out two more movies for us to do another episode. Well, he's going to do one more. He's already announced it. Yeah. But I don't know if there will be two more, technically. But I will say, 
I don't know that it has anything to do with the Weinstein company or anything like that. I feel like it has more to do with the editor on these films, which you might bring up here in a minute. But um, I, I just, I, yeah. Anyway, get back to the Hateful Eight. Okay. So we talked about how the Hateful Eight is an extremely long movie, blah, blah, blah. So Quentin was not satisfied with the version that came out in theaters. And he wanted it to be his full vision. And so uh, I don't have this in my notes, but I seem to remember this, that there's a black and white version of it and then also a color version of it on Netflix. I don't know if the black and white version is on Netflix, but I do remember like they made a big deal about the scope of the film when Mm -hmm. it was coming out. I, I, I don't remember the exact dimensions or whatever, but all of that is fine and good for the first like, 20 minutes when they're actually outside right but the bulk of the film takes place it's almost like a stage play it takes right. place at one location yes with one camera that just kind of goes left to right yeah so i don't really know what that camera lens has to do with anything i want to say that it's kind of like a panoramic view sort of deal and you see more of the room and stuff happening across i don't I don't fully know. Maybe, maybe you're, you're probably right. But I just remember thinking like when, when he was making a big deal about that, I remember seeing stuff online about like, yeah, it's really dope for like nature and panoramic landscapes, but interior, it's not going to do much to change the overall vibe. Right. But as far as the black and white versus the color, I didn't hear that. But honestly, you could make this a black and white film, and it, it I don't know that it would enhance anything, but it definitely wouldn't take anything away from it. No. So April 25th, 2019, it was released in the four-part miniseries, which I feel like Quentin's going to end up going more towards miniseries stuff for streaming platforms. It just makes sense to me because he likes to make these long long movies as we saw with the hateful eight and it makes more sense to me for him to do that because you know i don't know if you saw if you watched the uh, the irishman that was a long ass movie i think it was like like almost four hours long i don't know it was just it, that was not a movie that i would have gone to the theater for that was uh scorsese anyway so sarah's favorite movies are the lord of the rings movies and she has them all on blu-ray the extended cuts and yep. return of the king is pushing four hours so yeah those are are some long movies i i know that as the time of this recording tarantino announced that he has one more film that he wants to do and it's called the film critic uh yes. i don't know anything about it i just know that that's the name and that he's going to write and direct it and that's supposedly going to be his last quote unquote film to your point i think three-part four-part miniseries on netflix streaming services that might be a really cute way for tarantino to get around the whole i said i was gonna do 10 films i did 10 films now this is a quote-unquote miniseries no it's a four-hour long film like you like to do you know um i wouldn't be shocked to see that he's gonna do a four-part cinderella series and there's gonna be at least two hours spent on the foot just saying i it's you know, with the way Disney likes to do their live action remakes, could we see a Disney Tarantino pairing? 
Maybe. I don't know. That would be weird. All right. So let's talk about the guitar incident. Oh, yes. All right. Wonderful. So your boy, Kurt Russell, <laughs> there's a scene where he smashed guitar for emphasis of a point, And everybody on set gasped and their reactions were genuine because it was not swapped out for the prop guitar that he was supposed to smash. Do you want to guess how much this guitar was worth? I think I saw in time and I might be way off, but I remember it being something like 20 grand, $40,000 guitar and $40,000 guitar. It was lent to them by the Martin guitar museum. And after this, they've said, we're not loaning our guitars out for any horror movies. My, my dad had a Martin D 35, which is a great guitar. But it's not even like top of the line. And that was like two grand. Yeah. Martin guitars are no joke. No, they're not. And historic piece from like the 30s or 40s, which is where I think this guitar came from. Yeah, that is a, well, I mean, hell, Kurt Russell probably wrote a check and said, oh, my bad. And that was the end of it. But to us normal people, yeah, that sucks. So uh, Dick Bach, the museum director, uh, said the museum was not told that the script included a scene for the guitar being smashed and would not have loaned the guitar out if there was a risk of that happening. But when it happened, Tarantino also knew what had happened, knew that it was not swapped out, and he just sat in the corner smiling because he got the reaction out of everybody he wanted, even though the insurance for the movie just went up 40 grand. Yeah, so I remember watching... so. If you've ever seen the film, you know that uh, Lee's character, she has a very thick, like, country kind of slobbery kind of drunk accent. She's not an attractive woman in that movie. No, her teeth are all jacked up and and whatever. But during that scene, Kurt Russell's playing the guitar and then he flips out and smashes it. Her whole voice changes. Yep. He goes from this low, like, blah, 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 blah kind of voice like whoa whoa stop it like mm-hmm. it immediately changes and quentin being again say what you want but being the guy that he is was like that's awesome keep it in keep rolling <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah no he uh he just let it go and i think he knew that it would be he okay knew. it'd be okay so all right <clears throat> this movie did not make the return that other ones have that we've talked about tonight. Uh, budget is estimated between 44 and 62 million, and it made 156.5. That's eh, a return, you know. So, of course, great reviews. Not my favorite Tarantino movie by any means, but, uh, and again, race issues pop back up, but uh, Tarantino pretty much went, we've done all this. <laughs> we've already gone through this. But one thing that was praised in the movie, it was criticized and praised, was uh, the gender issues of the movie that Jennifer Jason Lee's character was not treated any better than any guy on the set and was not sexualized at all and was actually just a piece of meat, piece of shit in the movie and just... And and even Zoe Bell, she has a very short role, but mm-hmm. same thing. She's yeah. just one of the guys. Like, right. there is no... And to be honest with you... I tend to be able to pick these out. 
I don't remember there being any sort of foot scene. No, in the late. No, I don't think so. I don't think um, Jennifer Jason Lee's character would have had feet he wanted to show, based on Probably the condition of her teeth. But, no. but Zoe Bell, her feet never come up. I don't. No. I don't think there's any feet in Hateful Eight. Might be his only film. Maybe. So, all right, that is part three of Q is for Quentin Tarantino. So, I love some Tarantino. This this section of his movies is not my favorite, but they're still very good. Obviously, Monster, you have differing opinions when it comes to to these. But if you want to talk about Quentin Tarantino movies on your own, you can start your own podcast by going to podbean.com slash Sarge and get a month free of podcast hosting services to where you could talk about Quentin Tarantino as much as you want to, and people will listen in and it will be great, but you got to read those terms and conditions. They do apply, but none of them are going to apply to your level of Tarantino, love, hate, whatever it may be. One of the terms and conditions is you have to bring the toe count or the foot fetish count to the uh, stream. But to, to respond to your point, if we're taking these in three film chunks, this might be my favorite section, Quentin Tarantino. Okay. Because Inglorious Bastards is my favorite. Django is very close to my second favorite, if not my second favorite. And even though I don't love Hateful Eight, I think the Netflix version, the extended cut, adds a little bit to the paranoia, adds yes. a little bit to the stage play aspect of it all. And I think it's a really interesting film, even if it doesn't work from start to finish. This might be my favorite section because leading up to it, I was a little meh. And after Hateful Eight, I'm a little meh. But these three films, they're not all perfect, but they're close. I don't think I've got a favorite block, but I've got a few of his that are our favorites. So Maybe, maybe if we need to do another cue for Quentin... We can just rank our Tarantino film. Yeah. Well, if if we come up with a cue for next season. So that actually uh, reminds me, if anybody out there has a suggestion for cue, please email us at dangerandsarge at gmail.com and shoot us your suggestion for that or any other episode. Check us out on any of the platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Danger and Sarge across all of those. And I am actually going to forego the dad jokes tonight. I am not going to round this out with dad jokes. Just not going to. So I I think we're we're safe to just call it tonight. Oh, I could pull up some right now because I have dad jokes at the ready at all times, but I'm not going to. I'm going to close out. Q is for Quentin Tarantino because he's only got one more movie left in him after the one that we have. And so it might just be an odd episode <laughs> that we do. We, we might revisit Quentin at some point, but maybe, maybe we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. All right. If you're still here listening, thank you. I appreciate it on behalf of danger and Sarge along with monster. Thank you for listening. And until next time, bye later. It's over. Done. Done.